Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Mike Pratz, and today I'm joined by my colleague, possibly my favorite colleague, Craig Bolger. It's because I'm the only one here today. We are going to talk about a paper called Wamami. What a great name, Wamami. Makes me hungry for sushi. <laughs> me too. The entire title is Emergency Physicians Can Accurately Identify Wall Motion Abnormalities in Acute Myocardial Infarction. So the Wamami comes from Wall Motion Abnormalities Acute MI. This was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, April 2019, e-published. So what is this about? Regional wall motion abnormalities. This is something that has been used in comprehensive echoes since the beginning of time. And it's quite useful, especially in patients that you're worried about acute myocardial ischemia. Because what you're looking for is portions of the wall that aren't moving like the rest of them. And in the right clinical setting, this could mean that area of the heart is not getting enough perfusion, and you can then ideally trace that back to a coronary artery occlusion. So wouldn't it be great if we could figure this out up front in the emergency department and say, hey, this person's heart isn't moving right, let's get them some sort of intervention to help restore their circulation. But we don't know if this can be done as a point of care study. This is kind of on the complex end of things. Not everyone is trained in this. It takes a little bit of practice to train your eye to see these wall motion abnormalities, and it hasn't been well studied. We don't know if people in the emergency department can do this accurately, and that's where this study comes in. Cray, how did they do this? So this was a single academic center. They looked at adult patients with a known STEMI on 12 lead. So keep that in mind because we're going to talk about that later. Wait, so they had a STEMI and they stopped everything to do the ultrasound? They said, don't, don't send them to the cath lab. Quick, we got to do a 20-minute ultrasound. No, after they went to the cath lab, they went up and did their point-of-care ultrasound. Oh, that's good. So we might have a little bit of bias sneaking in here. Um, they only were excluded if they didn't consent, um, which I think if somebody saved your life, you're probably more likely to say sure, do whatever. They, it was prospective and observational. They followed essentially the STEMI alert system that most hospitals have and essentially waited outside the cath lab for them to do their echo. Um, they did this after reperfusion or no intervention, but after they went to the cath lab and they tried to do it at least within 24 hours. They did not know anything other than that this patient met activation criteria pre-hospital. So they didn't know the results of the cath or any other um, blood work, past medical history, just that they were a STEMI activation. They didn't even see their EKG, which is important because they were also trying to answer the question, what coronary artery could be occluded? Okay. So they didn't have any idea, only knew this patient was a STEMI alert. And they didn't look at any other components of the echo. It was, is there a wall motion abnormality? If so, where? That was really the only thing they were asking um, this group to do. Many of them had comprehensive echoes following up their uh, point of care echo, so there was a point of comparison. Not all, though. Um, and they looked at the agreement between the point of care echo and the comprehensive echo, as well as the catheterization results. So they needed about 65 patients per their power study. They had residents of all levels of training, so they had 
only one PGY3, probably the one wanting to do an ultrasound fellowship, Two, three PGY2s, and five very eager interns. They did at least 25 point-of-care echoes, 150 POCUS studies, so they've met the bare minimum of general ultrasound experience. And then they also did an instructional module say, teaching them about regional wall motion abnormality, which I would argue is probably not part of a standard emergency medicine ultrasound curriculum. So they got a little extra special training. They used a phased array transducer and did four view, or three views, excuse me, apical four, parasternal long, and parasternal short. So let's talk about what they found. They ended up enrolling 75 patients. Six patients got excluded, Craig, despite having saved their lives with placing Sorry. a stent, they still did not feel compelled to contribute to science. So. <laughs> That meant they ended up with 69 patients total, and these were kind of what you'd expect, 49% male, median age of 65. A good amount of them had a history of coronary artery disease. Even 7% had a coronary artery bypass prior to this. 97% underwent cardiac catheterization. 84% had a percutaneous coronary intervention. 30% of these people had thrombolytics, so this isn't people that only went to the cath lab. Primary outcome, the presence or absence of regional wall motion abnormality. How accurate is point of care echo? Sensitivity, 88%. Specificity, 92%. That gives you an area under the curve of 0.74, positive likelihood ratio 11.5, negative likelihood ratio of 0.13. So pretty decent. Now their secondary outcome was localization of this regional wall motion abnormality. How accurately could they match it to the right coronary? Not the right coronary, but the correct coronary. <laughs> For that outcome, they had a sensitivity of 90% and a specificity of 83%. Positive likelihood ratio 5.4, negative likelihood ratio 0.13. So a little bit less accurate for that outcome. They had a few other interesting findings. The average time from the onset of symptoms to when they got their point of care echo was 13 and a half hours, so that, that matters. Now their reference standard, the comprehensive echo, took an average of 23 hours to get. So we always have to be a little wary when there's significant time between those two studies that you're comparing. And another really interesting finding, they actually listed all of their operators and all of their false negatives and their false positives, just so you could kind of see among these nine residents who are doing these studies, how well did each of them do? And what's kind of stood out to me as I looked at that figure was that one of these residents had no false studies and one of them had a pretty large proportion of the false studies. And those two did together a big component of all of the studies that were done. So that was interesting and I actually, we can talk about this a little bit later, but I actually reanalyzed some of the data. If you excluded that one operator and looked at the outcomes then, you would see that th the results actually improved quite a lot. You would end up having a positive likelihood ratio of 16 and a negative likelihood ratio of zero since there was 100% sensitivity in that case. So th that just shows you how one operator or how operator dependence in general can really throw the results around. Cray, any other limitations you wanted to talk about with this study? Well, it was small. Um, they did 
uh, meet their power number. However, it was a convenient sample population. It was a single center. They had a fairly small number of users um, that were weighted more towards the inexperienced side of things. The majority of their people scanning were PGY1 interns. Um, The fact that we know these are STEMI activations, which probably means that like your pretest probability is already higher. We're not putting them in with the general mix of patients who maybe just have a weird EKG and you want to look at that echo and see if it correlates with the weird EKG, which I think is where a lot of us want this regional wall motion abnormalities to pan out. A clear-cut STEMI is rushing straight to the cath lab. Um, but it's that person who has a good story and not convincing EKG who you want that echo to sell your case. And I think that that patient population um, is not really the one we're looking at here. Also, because there was that one operator, there's a lot of variability between the operators, um, or at least that one. But I think that's a fair thing is emergency medicine is a very heterogeneous population, especially emergency medicine or point of care ultrasound. You have users who took a weekend course, you have users who devote all day, every day of their time to this, and there needs to be consistency amongst us. And until there is, um, it makes it hard to sell this as a standard operating practice. And this is probably the case in more studies than we know. It was just really nice of these investigators to point out every single operator and all the studies they did. A lot of times we are dealing with large heterogeneous populations of learners where some people are probably incredibly accurate and some people are poorly accurate and we don't even know that variation because it's not reported. So great job to the authors for kind of pointing this out in this study. I think too the fact that that was all they were focusing on. So if you're doing just a bedside echo and you're looking for strain, wall motion abnormality, pericardial effusion, general function, your eyes aren't honing in on one specific thing and you may be more likely to miss these more subtle um, findings. The other thing is if the reperfusion is successful, how long does it take for the echo to return to normal? Um, Are we picking that up potentially? That's a whole separate study. Are we picking that up potentially with this delay between point of care echo and um, the comprehensive echo? You know, or you know, we know some people don't ever return to normal depending on how long that artery has been down for. So I think that's by itself a limitation of the study is that they're not being done back to back and that we don't really know. And I don't think there necessarily is a specific time frame because it's vasculature person timing dependent to how much damage has really been done to that muscle. If you had a STEMI in the ER when you like walked in, got to the cath lab, got opened, you might have a normal echo after your cath. So it's hard to say how much that timing affects things. And that brings up another great point, Greg, because all of these patients had a STEMI. The authors, even in their discussion and their introduction, allude to the fact that STEMI patients is not who we're looking to use this modality on in the emergency department, right? We already know what to do with STEMI patients. What we think this could be valuable for is more patients that may have acute coronary syndrome, but they don't quite meet activation criteria needing to go straight to the cath lab. Maybe you're NSTEMI patients or patients you're not sure exactly if this could be acute coronary syndrome of some type. And the problem is that you can't do a study on only STEMI patients and then say, this is pretty good, let's use it on NSTEMI patients. Because these are totally different populations. 
the reason that they need to go to the cath lab is because there's different pathophysiology going on there and it may affect the accuracy of the study. Maybe for example, STEMI patients, because they are having coronary occlusions, may have more obvious wall motion abnormality, making the accuracy a lot higher in that population compared to those that are just having a small end STEMI. They may not be able to reproduce the accuracy in that population. I think too, this needs to be looked at is, is there a mortality benefit? We, we're trying to move more that way, I think, with point of care echo is, are we changing outcomes for these patients? Um, and I think there's even question as to whether or not the cath lab is always a change in outcome for these patients. You know, I think we're starting to get more conservative um, compared to 10 years ago when, you know, anybody with a left new left bundle or an unknown left bundle um, or any concerning EKG went running upstairs. I think we realize that we have to be more selective with these patients to get better outcomes. Really good point. So what you're saying is, if a patient has an NSTEMI, does doing this echo and finding wall motion abnormality even matter at all? Or are we potentially putting them at more harm because we'll see this wall motion abnormality and put them in the cath lab, which may or may not actually provide them a benefit? Great point. So there's obviously a lot more that needs to be researched in this area, but I think this is a really helpful start. Now, a couple other points of discussion. This study interestingly saw that as the data was collected, later studies seem to have a little bit more of those false positives and false negatives, suggesting perhaps that these operators were deteriorating in their skills as it went on, which is a little bit counterintuitive because you'd think after you get a couple under your belt, you'd get better at seeing the wall motion abnormality. So to me, that kind of just speaks to the difficulty of this as a type of point of care echo. It's not easy for everyone to pick up and it does take a little extra training. Part of that too, Mike, is, you know, this isn't what, this isn't part of your innate skill with point of care ultrasound. This is something extra. So it's like, I saw this this weekend on TV, I'm going to do it. And because you're not doing it every day in the department, it's the retention is going to go down um, because it's also not, you know, part of our day-to-day activity. Lastly, we can just mention that speckle tracking, which we've discussed previously on this podcast, was not used in this case. And that has been posited as a way to make this a lot easier for people to pick up by graphically representing the wall motion abnormalities. So that's just an idea. Maybe if we used speckle tracking, that would increase the accuracy even more. So let's summarize this study. This was 69 STEMI patients. They found that they had an accuracy for the presence or absence of regional wall motion abnormality, a positive likelihood ratio of 11.5 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.13. They were slightly less accurate for identifying the or localizing the regional wall motion abnormality. Our take home points from this study that point-of-care echocardiography is fairly accurate for the presence of regional wall motion abnormality in these patients with STEMIs, but we're gonna need some more research to figure out if this is actually useful in other populations, such as NSTEMIs, and we're gonna need even more research after that to see if this changes anything for the patient. 
thanks so much to the authors for performing this really awesome study. And thank you for listening to our podcast. If you want to find out more, go to ultrasoundgel.org. You can check us out on Facebook or talk to us on Twitter, where we would love to hear from you. Until then, we'll talk to you later. More pressure, more gel, more pressure, more gel, more pressure, more gel, more pressure, more gel, 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 more